So I thought maybe we would, uh, we'd start with a little, little uh, Bible quiz today. We'll see, see how you do here. It'll, it'll be fun, I promise. Uh, just a few questions. Uh, the first question is this. Here we go. What is the most used word in modern English translations of the Bible? Those of you who guessed the are correct. It's kind of a trick question for those of you who are like thinking about holy words and stuff, right? So, uh, so and actually the King, King James Version concordance says and is the most used word, but, but more modern English uh, translations have the as, the as the most common word. Okay, so uh, let's, let's dig a little deeper. Uh, what is the most used word in the Bible that is not an article or a pronoun? Love, good. Any other, anybody else want to, feel free if you're at home to, to fire them off on Facebook or just to yell them out loud yourself there too. The answer is Lord. The answer is Lord. And uh, 6,745 times uh, in the New International Version if you're counting. And uh, if that number's not quite exactly right, uh, don't blame me. I, had, I looked it up because I didn't go through and count every uh, Every Lord in the Bible. God, uh, some of you guessed God. God is the second most appearing word at 3,995 times. So, now you're ready for Jeopardy. So, let's, uh, let's, let's actually zoom in a bit further. Uh, in the New Testament, in the four Gospels, four accounts of Jesus, what did Jesus teach about the most? What did Jesus teach about the most in the accounts that we have from the four writers of the Gospels? <laughs> Love is going to be the answer here in a minute. We're going to get there, right? <laughs> it's got to be there. Uh, the answer is the kingdom of God. Right? <laughs> Jesus... <laughs> Jesus taught about love, right? And he taught about faith, and he taught about money, and he taught about heaven and, and hell, right? But all of these, all of these teachings were almost always pointed at a bigger picture. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of, of God is like. The parables, right? They would often talk about what the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like. So today, I just want to say up front, we are going to talk about money, and we're going to talk about giving. And I want to say that up front because I know that this topic makes people queasy, right? In the church, I think, I think part of what happens when we talk about money or when we talk about, about giving, I think what happens is that our brains, for, for whatever reason, before, before like the pastor even says anything, our, our brains jump, and, uh, and we think that someone, when they're talking about money, is, is asking us for money, right? Oh, he, the pastor's going to, and, and for good reason, sometimes pastors, we have done this, right? Well, we're talking about giving, so he's now going to ask us for, for more money. And then we feel pressured to give, like if we're, if we're giving already and we don't really like the pressure, or, or sometimes we feel guilty if we're, if we're not giving and we don't like to feel the, the guilt, Right? Or, or, or sometimes I think we feel like somebody is judging us um, for what we do with our money or, or how we spend our money. Um, as you'll hear in a moment, this is not, this is not the reason we're going to be talking about money and giving today. And I, I think the other thing is, if, if we look, right, we're not comfortable talking about money 
for the most part, period, in our lives. Um, I, I mean, if, if you think, um, I mean, think about, like, people my age and older who are talking to aging parents. Like, we don't talk with our parents about money. I think maybe because we think that if we bring it up, they're going to think we want their inheritance or we're worried about their inheritance. Like, we, we often don't have those conversations. And as a pastor, I'll be with families, you know, when, when that time comes of passing and, and they haven't had the conversation about what the, what the desires of the parents are around, around resources and, and, and living and, and how they want their money used and, and spent. It's, it's like there's just this discomfort talking about in our society. And I don't know why, but we also don't talk about with our kids much about money. And if you think about this, um, and I, sh- my wife Cheryl and I, we're guilty of this too. Like I, maybe we don't talk about it because we don't, if, when things are tight, we don't want them to worry or, or we don't want them to, um, uh, you know, like, like think that we don't have enough money to support them or something. Or, and, and maybe, uh, this is probably, I've, I've erred this way. I don't want to talk because I don't want to think that we're doing financially okay and they can have anything they want, right? I don't, know, I don't know the reason exactly, but we don't talk with our kids about money. So it's no surprise when they get to uh, college or beyond and they don't, like suddenly we realize they don't really know about prioritizing or, or budgets or, or how to make it on uh, on the income that they're, they're making, how to handle financial decisions. We just, don't, we just don't talk much about money. So today, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about money, and, and more specifically than money, though, today, we're really going to talk about giving. And um, uh, Andrea is going to be watching in the back to see if any of you are sliding out right now. just want you to know. <laughs> Ashley is watching online, so if you're online, she'll know if you, you know, click the X button and, and go. So please don't. Um, for those who, who are already feeling a little queasy today, let me, just, let me just assure you, this is, nobody is judging you, no guilt is intended. I'm not asking you for, for money per se. We're, at the heart of it, we're going to talk about money and giving because Jesus talked about money and giving. By some counts, 11 of the 39 parables have money within them. But, but like Jesus... Like Jesus, it's really not about the money, right? What we're really going to talk about today is is an invitation from Jesus to participate in the kingdom of God. Let me invite you to hear that again. We're going to talk about money, we're going to talk about giving, but really, really we're going to talk about an invitation from Jesus to fully experience the kingdom of God in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, take my lips this day and and just speak through them. And take our minds and and think through them. And Jesus, take our, our hearts and set them on fire with your love. Amen. Adam Grant is a teacher at Harvard. Actually, he's, he's one of the most popular teachers. People love his classes. They're waiting lists to get into Adam Grant's classes. His, experience, uh, his expertise area is organizational psychology. And uh, a few years ago now, he wrote a book called uh, Give and Take, Why Helping Others Drives Our Success. And in the book, he says there are essentially, and from his studies, there are essentially three kinds of people in the, in the world when it comes to 
generosity and giving. There are givers, and there are takers, and there are matchers. Givers, as you might expect, are those who give generously without any expectation of reciprocation, right? They just, they just give. Takers, you also might be able to guess what, what takers are. Um, they're those who always expect to get more than they give. Now, this doesn't mean that they don't give. Takers will sometimes give, but only if it leads to tremendous personal gain, right? Only if it, only if it helps their image. You, you might think of the, the former CEO of Enron, um, was lifted up as a, as a great giver by Bush, but, but he was giving just to, to gain influence and ended up creating this house of cards that came down, for those that remember the, the Enron scandal years ago. Matchers, the third category, sometimes referred to as observers in the research. Um, they're those who give um, when they see that they'll get something of equal or greater value in return. Matchers tend to have a, a great sense of, of justice, right? That all the giving that we do should, should all sort of even itself out. Every gift should be matched by a, a, a return gift of some kind. So, let me give an example sort of for those of you who, like, you'd rather have this in how does this really look in, in a daily life. Let me give you an, an example. This is a bit oversimplified, but, but it'll give you an idea. So, uh, so let's say you, you go to a restaurant right? And, you, and the bill comes, and you're getting ready to tip. Here's how we might understand these three areas um, when it comes time to tip. A taker, a taker will, will only leave a good tip if they got the table that they wanted, um, or, or their food came out for, they asked for their food to come out first, and it came out for, like, if, if this meal served them in some ways, then they might give a tip. Otherwise, they're quite likely to leave nothing or anything that might set them off, they won't leave a tip at all. So, like, maybe it was the kitchen was slow. It's beyond the server's control, but they still, they still wouldn't tip because there's nothing in it for them, right? A matcher, right? Matchers are the, are, are the ones, and, uh, um, and I'll admit there are times in my life when I'm a matcher. Um, uh, matchers are the ones when they get the bill, and, you know, lots of times the, the checks now come with like 10% and 15% and 20%, so you can see it on there. They will take that, and they'll match it to the level of service that they got, right? It's an equal exchange, and so they'll, they'll, they'll tip, and, and not usually, um, I mean, they won't usually withhold a tip, but it's about the level of service, and, and it's give and take. It's, it's matching in that way. Givers, on the other hand, will take that receipt, and they'll often just give a tip that's at least 15, sometimes 20, sometimes 25%, sometimes more, because what's going through their head is that this person that's waiting on me is, is likely underpaid, making under minimum wage, and, and I, can, I can be a blessing to them. If they have the means, a giver will almost always tip more. Now, again, that's an oversimplification. And, uh, and the other thing to note is we, we, we tend to switch our style depending on whether we're at home or whether we're at work or whether we're out in public. There's some movement in our style, but this get, kind of gives us a good guide. Now, this month, we've, we're ending a, a nine-month sermon series, a journey through the Bible, and we've been looking back at sort of everything we've learned about our faith and, and about Jesus and asking, asking this question, like, who am I? Or, as we've put it, who are, who are you? 
inviting everybody to ask, answer that question, who are you? Today, we're going to ask that question again with Grant's categories in mind. Are you a giver, a matcher, or a taker? And what would you like to be? Now, I think, maybe I should say, I hope that all of us sitting in here, in, in some ways, we'd like to see ourselves as givers. But the research would say that seeing ourselves that way and actually living that way are not the same thing. Let me just give you an example. There was a study in Canada a few years ago now um, of couples, and each partner in the relationship was asked to uh, to give a percentage that they thought that they were giving toward the whole of the relationship. Right? So they're invited to think about chores and, and helping raise kids if they were raising kids and, and things around the house and shopping and just all those things that go into living together in a, in a relationship. And they were invited to, to give a percentage. How much do you give to this relationship? And uh, so if couples were honest and realistic, right, um, the, the percentages should add up to 100%. Three out of four couples had percentages that were way more than 100%. Everybody thought they were contributing, right? That study has been repeated uh, multiple times since then, right? We'd like to be givers. We, we want to see ourselves as givers. We'll, we'll label ourselves as givers, but, but are we? One way, I think, to, for us to get at that question is, is to ask, what does the life of a giver look like? So, turn to the Old Testament. If you want to grab a Bible and turn, we're, we're going to look at the book of Ruth today. There's this great story that, that some of you may know bits and pieces of about, about Ruth. Ruth was a, a Moabite. She married a, a Jewish man who was coming with uh, his uh, mother and father and his brother to Moab because they were escaping famine in, at the time in, in Judah. And, uh, and Ruth married this man, but in this terrible tragedy, he died, his father died, and his brother died. All of the men in the family died in the midst of this famine, and the women were left alone. We pick up the story there. This is Ruth 1, 8 and 9. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Now, to fully understand the, the story of Ruth, we have, to, we have to know that in these times, in, in biblical times, particularly Old Testament times, right? To lose your, your husband, and particularly all the men in your family, I mean, it just, it would mean extreme hardship. The truth is that the males were the, were the, were the breadwinners and, and often the farmers, and, and to, lose, to lose the male in your family, um, often what would happen is a widow would then be taken in by um, taken maybe as a wife by a, a younger brother or another member of the family. But when that wasn't possible, essentially you were condemned to a life of begging for every meal on your table. Right, so that, that will help us understand what's about to happen next. Ruth was young enough to marry again. 
Ruth and her sister-in-law both. That's why Naomi says, go, you know, go home. Go, go back to your, um, to your people in Moab because you're young enough. You can, you can marry again. There'll be somebody to take care of you. You don't have to live a life that is just destitute. And actually, Naomi and her sister-in-law refused to go at first, but then Naomi tells them again to go, and Ruth's sister-in-law leaves. But Ruth, she just she holds on to her mother-in-law. We pick up the story in Ruth chapter 1, 15 and 16. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And then she goes on, she says, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. This is the life of a giver. Ruth could have turned around, she could have gone back to her own people. She could have married again. She could have assured herself of a life of enough. She could have put her interests first, but she didn't. Ruth's story is in the Bible because of this decision that she made. This decision to, to accept and trust in the God of Naomi. This decision to, to give her entire life to her mother-in-law, to make and sacrifice possibilities for herself to love somebody else. How many of you would do this for your mother-in-law? Okay, bad question. <laughs> Don't answer that. Jeannie, if you're watching, um, I would do this for you. I truly would. Right? Ruth's life is the life of a giver. Givers give generously simply to, simply to help others. Givers don't have any expectation that a gift will be returned. Ruth had no expectation that, that life would be easy or that she would be blessed down the road. In fact, the chances of that at the time were slim. Givers simply Give because they care and they love others. Do we give like this? Are we, are we willing to give like this? Jesus, he shares, he shares an understanding of generosity that, that looks a lot like Ruth in Luke's gospel, chapter 21. Jesus and the disciples are, are hanging out near the temple. And, uh, and wealthy people are bringing their gifts and they're putting them into the, the temple treasury. And then a poor widow comes up. Maybe you know this story. A poor widow comes up and she puts in two copper coins. And Jesus immediately encourages the disciples to look and uses this as a teaching moment. And he says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had, 
to live on. This is a giver, one who is willing to give everything to God. To give everything so that others will know God's love, so that others are are cared for, the role of the temple at the time. So we get to to use this and and then ask, are are we givers? Or to think about, are we we matchers? Because our culture actually trains us to be matchers. Right? We learn to live in a culture um, that is transactional. And think about this for a moment. When, when you maybe go out to lunch with a friend and the friend picks up the tab, what, what are we often likely to say to them? Well, I'll get it next time. Right? It's a transaction. Um, and why do we say that? And there's nothing wrong with taking turns paying for lunch. Don't hear me say that. But why do we say that? Well, we say that because deep down, this is how we're trained to think. If somebody does something nice for me, then I, I need to return that favor and do something nice for them. Again, there's nothing wrong with this. But the reality is, underneath this polite exchange is a, is a way that we are trained by our world, by our culture, to think. Right? That is centered in give and take. The world trains us to be matchers. And the church, we might not think about this, but the church, we're not immune to this. Have you ever heard, uh, heard somebody encourage someone else to volunteer, an, an invitation to volunteer? Um, and and I, these words that I'm about to say, I have said them, right? Hey, you really ought to come and volunteer in our food pantry because you'll end up finding that you get more out of it than you put in. Keep inviting people to volunteer. In fact, you can keep saying that because it's wonderful to get people in, inviting people into this experience of giving. And it is an incredible blessing, but why do we have to put the, the, the because in there? Like, why do we need to convince people that they'll get more out of it than they put into it? Again, it's, it's our transactional culture. It's how we're trained to think, well, I would want to know what I'm going to get out of this if somebody's inviting me to do it, so I need to let them know what they are going to get out of it. Our, uh, our giving in the world often reflects this transactional nature of culture as well. I mean, right, there are names on buildings. Why are there names on buildings? It's transactional. When I give a gift... That there's recognition in, in that. Or as a pastor, I'll hear people say, with, with true meaning, you know, I can't wait until my kids are out of college and then I'll be able to give more. Or I look forward to, young people will say this, I look forward to when I'm making more money and then I'll give more. I said this when I was younger. In fact, when I was in high school, we had to write an, uh, an obituary for ourselves. It's kind of a weird project, I know. But uh, we had to write an obituary our senior year. And in my obituary, um, I, uh, I did all this stuff, and I made millions of dollars, and like, I, I traveled the world. And then at the very end, I gave a little bit, right? Um, and I became a pastor. Like At that point in my life, there was this call in my life, but I thought, well, I need to take care of myself, and then someday I will... I will serve God. Transaction, right? Take care of me, and then once I get myself propped up to a place, then I will, then I will serve God. 
the truth is, if we really want young people to experience the joy of giving, we would teach them to start giving as a percentage of where they are now, and then, yes, they'll be able to give more as they make more. But most people actually never get there because there's always something else that, that I need, some other, some other thing, that, some other fear, some other worry in, in my life, something else I need to take care of for myself before I can, before I can give. It's, it's transactional. And let me offer just sort of one more example of how this culture of transaction, of, of thinking as mattress plays out in the church. When, uh, when you hear people talk about worship today in, in our culture, um, like particularly Sunday morning worship or Saturday night worship, wherever they worship, you'll hear, you'll hear us say things like this. That they'll talk about how, how great the preaching is as it feeds me, like how, how the preaching feeds me, or how the music inspires me. Or how convenient it is for me, particularly today, how convenient it is for me now to watch online. Do you notice what's in all of those statements, at the heart of all of those statements? Me. Right? All three of these statements center around, around me. And we absolutely should be moved by the music and, and, and challenged to grow as disciples by, by preaching. I and mean, there's nothing wrong to to look at those things as we are finding our way into worship experiences. But the very way that we talk about shopping for a church today or, or how people will leave a church today simply because they, they don't agree or, or they'll say it, it no longer feeds me, right, reflects a transactional culture. We've set up worship as, a, as, as give and take. But the heart of worship is giving our whole selves to God. Let me invite us to hear that again. The very heart of worship is giving our whole selves to God. Worship is not about us. We've made it that way, but, but that's not the, the heart of worship. It pains me to say this today, but in fact, I had scribbled this out of my notes twice, and it just sort of keeps reappearing, kept reappearing on my heart. It pains me to say this today, but there's lots of talk about the church in, in America declining in attendance and, and membership. And I, I just shared this morning, it's not declining in membership and attendance because of the pandemic um, or, or the quality of local churches, the experience offered by local churches. Right? The church in America today is, is declining in membership and attendance and influence because we have made church a transactional affair. We've made it about us and not about God. I sometimes like to think of the church as a, like the, that maybe church is meant to be a giant potluck. Right? That, that we all come to this table that God invites us to, to, to say thank you to God for all the blessings, and, and we, we each bring our food offering, and, and some of us have, you know, small dishes, and some of us have big dishes, but we all bring, bring what we have, and, and then we share, and it's enough to feed everybody. Everybody. 
But I fear that in this transactional culture of today, we've come to see church as a, uh, as a catered affair, right? Where we're served by a, by a hired caterer. Maybe even more so today, we, we just want it to be takeout. And when we see it that way, we miss, right? We miss that Jesus invites us to the table to show us this incredible gift that, that Jesus has for us, right? Jesus gives everything for you and for me. He gives his very life for you and for me so that we can receive this gift of life eternal, he offers all of himself. Every bit of himself is poured out so that we can know a love that doesn't end. Right, so the invitation that, that Jesus gives, the invitation that Jesus offers for us to, to join in the giving, it, it's not about guilt and it's not about obligation. The invitation to give comes from Jesus, and the invitation is to give so that God's kingdom can expand, so that God's love can reach more people, so that so God's shalom, his goodness and peace can, can grow. Do you remember Ruth? Ruth's story uh, didn't end with the return to Judah. In fact, the story says she went out in the fields. She continues to give, right? Now she's going to give herself. She goes out in the fields, which could be a dangerous place for women, but she goes out in the fields to, to just follow behind the harvesters and, and take whatever leftovers she can find so that she can feed herself, but certainly to take care of, of her mother-in-law. And it just so happens she ends up in the, uh, she ends up in the field of Boaz, who's a, 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 a part of her mother-in-law's family. And Boaz invites her to to glean from the remnants of his harvest. But then he actually takes another step and he asks his harvesters to leave behind extra for her. And Ruth, Ruth comes to him and she's like, why? Like, why are you, why are you caring for me in this way? And this, Ruth 2, verse 11, this is, this is what Boaz says. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. I've been told, Boaz says, the story of Ruth's generosity had already spread through this family. Right? Ruth, Ruth didn't give in hopes that someday Boaz would bless her. She just gave. But when she gave, the community was blessed. The community had this example of caring for one another, and, and more people wanted, wanted to live in that way. And Boaz now has an opportunity to participate in that generosity as well, and he does. Right? The whole community is strengthened by this gift of generosity. Adam Grant, as he's studied givers, Matchers and takers, he found something really interesting in the world of business. He said, the stories you often hear of, of those who, who attain success in business are, um, are matchers and takers. And the, the reason that you hear their stories is because they tend to want the glory. They, they want people to, to see what they've, they've done. It's, it's about them. But often, 
Grant points out those success stories don't last. They come crashing down. Again, think Enron or any, any number of those who came crashing down during the financial crisis and, and took others with them. Right? But Grant says what research actually shows is that the very top tier, a good portion of the very top tier, are actually givers. And you don't hear their stories because they're not out there flouting them. But they've lifted entire organizations, and those organizations have long-term success because their giving filters into the culture of the entire organization and the people around them. Their desire to lift up people around them lifts up everyone. He writes, but there's something distinctive that happens when givers succeed. It spreads and cascades. It spreads as others are lifted up and mentored to contribute to the company. In, in our faith language, we'd say, there's something that happens when we give. The kingdom grows. Right? When takers succeed, they succeed at the expense of somebody else. When givers succeed, they succeed as the whole community is lifted along with them. And Grant adds this. He says, these same givers don't tend to give after they achieve success. It's not like they lifted everyone up and achieved success and then they give. They achieved success. They were givers before they were successful. Giving contributed to their success. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. One person gives freely, it says, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Jesus in all four Gospels, he says something similar. Right? Something that resonates with this proverb. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Does this mean if you give, you should expect to be first, or that you should expect to be rich? No. Just let's make sure we're on, on board there. It means something even better. Right? When you're running a race, if you stop and give water to those who are behind you, right, will you win the race? Not likely, unless you're really fast. Right? But you will have, you will have helped contribute to probably better, better times and a better experience for all those that are coming behind you. You will have lifted up and supported the entire community. When we accept the invitation from Jesus to give, to offer ourselves, we become part of God's kingdom. And we lift, we lift the whole community. And as we, as we raise the whole community, right, we get to experience it in ourselves. Right now, success isn't defined as personal achievement. We don't have to keep knocking ourselves out or draining ourselves to nothing to try and become what society says is successful, but we get to raise the whole, whole team and the, and the whole, whole company, helping everybody to prosper. Right? Success looks like mentoring others, not so that they can pay you back, but simply so that the, the community is better. Right? Success now isn't in how much wealth we accumulate, but in how we give to make our community a better place. When we give, we create opportunities for God to pour in more blessings. 
Let me invite you just to put your hands out in front of you. And to hear an invitation today. Imagine, imagine everything that you have, everything that God has given you is in your hands right now. I've done this exercise before, but I don't, I don't know a better way for us to sort of comprehend this message from the Bible, this message from Jesus about the kingdom of God. So everything in your hands right now, now take it and hold on to it. Like take it and, and grasp it tight. Don't, don't let go so, that, so you don't lose any of it. Right? If God wants to bless us now, where does it go? Right? There's no way, no way to accept it. We've closed ourselves off from receiving by holding on so tightly. Now open your hands back up. Hands out, palms open. And realize that even as we give and as we share, now we're open to God pouring more blessings into our lives. Joy, happiness, and peace, all of these all of these are going to be found not in how much we can hold on to, but in how much we give and we share and are open to what God is doing in the community in and through us. Our Faith Fit Challenge this week is just an invitation to experience the gift of giving. And please hear me say this, this one more time. This invitation, this invitation that I think we find in God's Word, I don't share this with any pressure or with any sense of obligation or any desire for guilt. It's just an invitation to experience God's kingdom expanding through us. So maybe, maybe today you've, you haven't given a gift of any kind recently, and, and today maybe you just hear an invitation from Jesus to, to make a gift to, to help build the community, make the world a better place. And maybe you're giving regularly, maybe, maybe you're giving a, a percentage regularly, and, and you've, you've thought, you've heard pastors talk in the past about the tithe and what a blessing it can be to, to tithe. And maybe, maybe these next three weeks, the invitation for you is to just increase one or two percentage points in, in your giving, your regular giving each month, and just see what God does. See what blessing God pours out in your giving. Or maybe you already tithe. And, uh, and the invitation you hear today from Jesus is just to, to share the story of God's blessing and generosity that you've experienced so, so others can know what a, what a gift it is to give. So who are you? Giver? Taker? Matcher? Maybe more important, who do you want to be? Let me invite you one more time. Just put your hands out like this. And now imagine like, Jesus is right in front of you and he, he just hands you an invitation. And this invitation, it doesn't hinge on whether you're a giver or a, or a taker or a matcher right now. It's, it's just an invitation that's a, that says, join me at my table and, and receive this gift that I have for you, eternal life, love that never ends. Receive this gift. And then I just want to invite you to go from that table and to give it to others and experience the blessing. Experience the blessing of, of this love that I have given to you expanding in your community, in your world. Amen.